Good morning, my name's Rachel and I'll be reading the Bible reading from Luke chapter 1. So open up your Bibles with me. We'll be starting at verse 26. So Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, my name is Ollie. I'm one of the ministers of our church, and I'm going to be uh, preaching today. Uh, do keep your Bible open. We'll be working through Luke chapter 1, uh, so it'd be great if you have it open and uh, follow along as we do. But as we begin, though, I'm going to pray and thank God for the time we've got, so please pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we know that your way is perfect and that your word is flawless. Indeed, you shield all who take refuge in it. And so, as we consider your word today, may you help it to be a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, almost a year ago to the day on Friday the 13th of November 2020, I had my ordination service to become an ordained Presbyterian minister. Some of you might remember, I know many of you watched online, uh, it still was in our lockdown, or we're just coming out of the lockdown time, so sadly we couldn't uh, all be here in person together, but uh, it was a joyful time. I was able to thankfully have my family along, and the elders were allowed to come along, and, and it was a great day. Uh, and In a sense, it was a culmination of 15 years of my life, uh, 15 years spent building up to that point. I time spent working as a school teacher, as I was getting some uh, secular world experience, Time spent uh, working, uh, doing a ministry apprenticeship to get some uh, ministry experience. Four years spent studying at college, doing exams and assignments and essays and all those kinds of things. Uh, many different uh, interviews to get there. It was a culmination of 15 years worth of work. And it was a great night. I was uh, very thankful for the things that happened there. I was uh, thankful that John uh, preached a message there. And I was, it was a great message, though I could have done without the low-hanging fruit he went for with the jokes to uh, insult my hairline. Um, but nevertheless, I was thankful for that. Uh, I was thankful to you for all of your prayer and support and the way you partnered with me. I was also thankful to the youth of our church who uh, made me a wonderful gift. They made me a gift of, uh, they all did a picture, they all uh, drew their own picture that, uh, that was meant to be me. So if we can uh, get the uh, PowerPoint uh, going onto the, onto the next slide and I'll show you what the, um, the picture there is. So that's the picture they made for me and I appreciate that. But what I particularly love about this, uh, this 
picture is every time I look at it, it keeps me humble that that's what I look like. It's just uh, about 30 different insulting pictures. So uh, certainly I was thankful to them, though, for doing that. And I was thankful to church. I don't know if you're aware of this. Church actually gave me this, which is an uh, engraved torch. And so this uh, lives next to my bed, serving two purposes. One, uh, in case the power ever goes out and I need a, a light to see what I'm doing. But two, as a weapon. It's a, it's a sturdy torch. So if anyone ever breaks into my house, I can use this as a weapon to defend uh, Cassie and Levi. So, uh, yeah, I was thankful for that. But it was just a great evening, a culmination, as I said, of 15 years it was when I got my, in a sense, qualification to be an ordained Presbyterian minister. Now, we do know that, of course, you don't need qualifications to do ministry, but to be an ordained Presbyterian minister, you do need certain qualifications, and that was the culmination of it. But isn't that the way we, the world works? The world works that you need qualifications for things. Think about it. When you get your car serviced, who do you go to? Well, you don't go to someone that doesn't know how to change a tire. You don't go to someone who doesn't know what the parts in a car are. No, you go to a qualified mechanic, someone who knows what they're doing and won't damage your car. Or how about at the beach in summer? When we go to the beach and we see the lifeguards there, we want someone who's qualified. We don't want someone who doesn't know how to swim because when they try and swim out to save someone else, they're going to get in trouble as well. They're going to make the situation worse. Or what about the dentist? It's never an enjoyable thing to go to the dentist. But I'm sure it would be even more unenjoyable if they weren't qualified, if they didn't know what they were doing as they hacked into your mouth. Or when we go for surgery, we certainly want the person on the other side of the scalpel to be qualified, to know what they're doing. See, qualifications matter. In life, we want people who are qualified, and if that's what we want for those who are around us, for dentists and for lifeguards and for surgeons, then how much more should we want our God to be qualified? How much more than a mechanic, than a dentist, than even a lifeguard or a surgeon? Have you ever thought about that? Surely we want our God to be qualified. And today we're looking at Luke 1, 26 to 38, and what it shows us is that Jesus is supremely and utterly qualified to do what he says he'll do. Because across his life, he makes many enormous, extraordinary claims. He claims that apart from him, no one can have life. He claims that he's the only way to get to God. In fact, he claims that he is God. But what makes him qualified to say that? Well, that's what we're thinking about today. And as we do, we'll see four things, four grounds for qualification for Jesus. And the first grounds for his qualification is his name. Our story starts off six, weeks, six months after the events of last week. Elizabeth, Mary's relative, is now six months pregnant. So you can imagine she's getting that back pain. She's getting the cramps. She's getting all those things. Maybe even some Braxton Hicks. If you don't know what they are, they're something associated with it. I only found out when Cassie was pregnant. But you can just imagine she's experiencing all of these different uh, side effects that go along with pregnancy. And it's at that time, while Elizabeth is going through all of that, that the angel comes again, and this time he comes to Mary. Have a look at verses 26 and 27 with me. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, 
God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. See, six months after the angel has just gone to Zechariah and told him about Elizabeth, he goes to another lady. But this time he doesn't go to the wondrously grand temple. He doesn't go to the mighty city of Jerusalem. Instead, he goes to lowly Nazareth. And there he finds Mary, a peasant girl, who's married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, one of the greatest Jewish kings of all time. And this angel comes to Mary and he speaks to her. Have a look at verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Now, I know we're quite familiar with the story, but how would you expect Mary to respond in that situation? How do you think you'd respond if you were Mary? Well, we might expect that she'd be quite chuffed. An angel of the Lord has just come to her and told her she's highly favoured by God. This sounds like such good news. We'd think she'd be excited. But did you see how she responds? Did you see what she feels like? Have a look at verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, we see this quite a lot in the Bible. Often when angels come to people, they're kind of struck down by fear. They're deeply troubled. Evidently, seeing an angel is quite an unsettling uh, experience. And so, uh, Mary's troubled here. She's, she's wondering, what is it that this angel wants with her? What is it that God wants with her? But the angel doesn't leave her in suspense for long. Straight away, he does tell her. Have a look at verses 30 and 31. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He tells her, you're going to have a child. And what a joyful thing that must have been for her. It's always a joyful, wondrous experience to find out that you're having a child. I still remember where I was when I found out that Cassie was pregnant. I remember how the conversation went. It was a joyful time. But Mary doesn't just find out she's having a child. She actually finds out the gender as well. She finds out it's going to be a boy. Again, I can remember uh, where I was when I found out. I can remember the ultrasounds. In fact, uh, that's the ultrasound of Levi. Uh, when he was, when we went to get scanned, at, I think it was about 16 weeks or so, and that was the day we found out he was going to be a boy, and that was a, a joyful thing. And what we did afterwards was we then made an announcement to our family and friends, and we told everyone, not just we're having a, a child, but we're having a son. But what we didn't do was we didn't tell people the name we didn't say, we're going to call him Levi. We waited until he was born. And I don't know if you've realized that, but that's often the way things go. When people announce they're having a baby, they might announce the gender, but it's not often they'll announce the name. Maybe sometimes, but not often. Have you ever noticed that? Why is it? Well, because the name is special. The name, in a sense, kind of captures a little bit of what that child will be like. And certainly that's the case in our culture today, but you've got to remember in their culture that was even more the case. Names had such incredible meaning in those times. And so that's why in Genesis 21, when Sarah finally has a child, she calls him Isaac. That is, uh, he will laugh or he will rejoice 
because after all those years of trying, she says, people will rejoice with her, people will laugh in joy at the wonderful gift of this child. Or in 1 Samuel, when Hannah finally has a child, after years and years of praying and asking God, what does she call him? Samuel, which means God has heard. God has heard her request for a child. See, in those times, the names of children had such incredible value, such incredible meaning. And the angel tells Mary, you will have a child, you will have a son, and his name will be Jesus. Do you know what the name Jesus means? God saves. God saves. This child will be God saves. And that's the first grounds then for Jesus' qualification, His name, God saves. It's such an important reminder for us because it reminds us of that fundamental truth of the reality of things, that is that we can't save ourselves. God is the only one that can save people. Salvation belongs to God and to God alone. See, even if I wanted to, I couldn't save myself, leave alone you. See, the only one that can bridge the gap, the chasm between God and us is God. Salvation can't come from any man, but only from God. And so we need a Savior who knows that. We need a Savior who knows that salvation only comes from God. And that's what we see in Jesus. That's the first qualification. We see that hint, that glimpse of who He is and what He'll do. He has a name that aligns with the reality of things, that God saves. But at this stage, uh, Mary's probably not quite clicked onto what's happening and the significance of it. Uh, Jesus was probably a reasonably common name in those times. So it hasn't fully dawned on her the significance of this child. But that doesn't last long. The angel speaks again. And this time we see the second grounds for Jesus' qualification. His identity. Did you see what the angel said? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, that's a full verse with a, a lot to unpack from it. But firstly, we see his identity. He'll be great. He'll tower above all of humanity. And I'm sure we can all think of different people who are great in particular fields. We can think of Leonardo da Vinci, who's great at painting or was great at painting. We can think of Shakespeare, who was great at writing and using the English language. We can think of Einstein, who is great at physics. And we might even think about John the Baptist, who we heard last week. Do you remember how John the Baptist was described in chapter 1, verse 15? God describes him as, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Again, there's greatness there. But the thing about all those figures is that their greatness is qualified. Their greatness isn't absolute. They're either great at art or they're great at science or in John the Baptist's description, he's great in the sight of the Lord. But that's not what we get with Jesus. His greatness is absolute. He's simply great. That's it, no qualify given, just great. Why? In, in what sense is Jesus great? Well, again, because of his identity, he'll be the son of the Most High. That is the son of God. That's a term for God. And again, that contrasts with John the Baptist from last week. 
because later in the chapter, John is described as a prophet of God, a prophet of the Most High. See, a prophet is good, but the Son is better. And that's what Jesus is, the Son of the Most High. And see, this is crucial to understanding why Jesus is so qualified. He's qualified because of his identity as the great Son of the Most High, the Son of God. And as this Son of God comes down, what will he do? What's his identity? Well, he'll sit on the throne of his father, David. Uh, this is alluding, this, this reference is alluding to one of the greatest Bible passages in the whole of Scripture. Now, of course, we know that all Scriptures God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that we might be thoroughly equipped to serve God. We know that that's the case. But even across the, the whole Bible, there's certain passages that are key moments in God's saving picture. And, two, and one Samuel, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel, chapter 7, is one of those key, key passages in the Bible. In fact, it was so key that I, I remember with, our, uh, with my Old Testament subject at, at college, we had to uh, do an essay on this in an exam. We had to translate this passage in an exam. That's how foundational it is to understanding the message of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And in it, basically, David says... King David says, God, I want to build you a temple. I want to build you a house. And God responds, no, I'll build you a house. I'll make you a line. There'll be a king from you who'll sit on the throne forever. That's this wonderful promise that God makes. And what we see here in verse 32 is that this son, that's his identity. He is the fulfillment of that promise hundreds of years later. The king who sit on the throne of David forever. It's a, a promise of the Davidic Messiah, God's awaited king who come and rescue God's people. And see, that's why Jesus is supremely qualified because of his identity. As the great son of God who sit on the throne of David and fulfill this incredible promise and that is what we need. We need a saviour who's different to the norm, whose identity is different. It can't just be any old person. We can't just go down the street and find any old person to come and save us. No, we need a saviour with a special identity of royal lineage who'll come and fulfil that promise. And that's what Jesus' identity is. But amazing as this is, do you see how long he'll do it for? Have a look at verse 33. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And see, that's the third qualification for Jesus, his eternality. His eternality. He will sit on this throne forever. I mean, think about how incredible that is. We know that kings and queens don't last forever. Do you know how long Queen Elizabeth has been our queen for almost 70 years. Almost 70 years. I mean, that's much longer than most of us, not all of us, but most of us have been alive. 70 years she's been the queen. She's seen off different world wars. She's seen all sorts of different world events. I actually looked up and, and checked out what the average span of length for an English monarch is, and it's 17.5 years, which means she's been the queen for four times as long as the average length. 
but even for Queen Elizabeth, we start seeing at the moment, don't we? Her health is declining and she's finding it more difficult to get to state functions and special functions. And we know that sadly, soon, likely, her queenship will end. She'll die and we'll have Charles will take over. See, we know that's the reality for, king, for kings and queens throughout the world. Eventually, their reign ends. But the incredible thing about this king, this saviour, is that his reign will never end. His reign will never end. And isn't that exactly what we need from a saviour? I mean, think how ridiculous it would be if we had a saviour who was a saviour for five years and then stopped, or 10 years and then stopped, or 50 years and then stopped. I mean, that's not a saviour at all. What we need is a saviour who is the same today as he is in a million years' time, capable of saving us today as he is in a million years' time. See, if a saviour wasn't an eternal saviour, he's not qualified at all. And yet that's the thing about Jesus. He is qualified because he is eternal. He will sit on the throne forever. But all of those other uh, qualifications, his name, his identity, and his eternality, they all hinge on the fourth qualification. That is, his origin. After the angel has told Mary all about this, she's understandably a little bit shocked, uh, which makes sense. She's a virgin. She's never slept with someone before. And so she asks, how is this possible? The angel then replies with something truly amazing. Have a look at verse 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of of God. Do you see what it's saying? Somehow the Holy Spirit will work and make Mary pregnant. In other words, Jesus' origin is that he'll have an earthly mother, but a heavenly father, which of course is so different to how things work. We know that. We all have a father, even if we never knew him, we still all have an earthly father. My dad's name was Bruce. His dad's name was Stanley. I mean, we all, we know that's how the world works. Everyone has a father. But the incredible thing about Jesus is that he didn't have an earthly father. He has a heavenly father. Now, I know this is not new to most of us. We're all very familiar with this. But have you ever stopped and thought about just how significant this fact is? I mean, why does it matter? Is this just a theological technicality? And it's a little point of doctrine, but we don't really think about it in the end we could do without. Have you ever wondered, what's at stake with this fact? Well, I'd put to you that this is so foundational that without this, the message of Christianity can't be true. That without this, there is no salvation to be found in Jesus. That's how foundational this is. Now, why do I say that? Well, because if Jesus was only a man, if both his father and his mother were humans, then he can't save us. He might be a good man, he might be a wise teacher, he might have said some incredibly insightful things. But he can't be our saviour. See, even if he lived a perfect life, then he's only doing the bare minimum. He's only doing the bare minimum that God demands of us. 
And so therefore, he can't save others. Maybe he'd save himself if he was perfect, but he can't save anyone else. He can't pay for our sins because he's only a man. See, if Jesus is not God, if Jesus is only a man, then he can't save us. He's not qualified. But by the same token, if Jesus is only a God, if, he's earthly, if he doesn't have an earthly mother, only a heavenly mother and father, then he can't save us. He's a little bit like a Marvel or DC superhero, like Superman or, or Wonder Woman or someone like that. This incredibly powerful figure, this divine figure that goes around the world doing amazing things, but unable to represent us. He might be benevolent to us, he might be kind to us, but he can't represent us. He cannot take our place. He cannot die for our sins because he's not one of us. See, if Jesus is only God and not man, then he's not qualified to pay for our sins. See, for Jesus to represent us, he must be a man. But for Jesus to pay the price for us, he must be God. He must be fully human and fully divine. And that's what Jesus is. He's my representative to God and he's God's representative to me. He identifies with me perfectly and he identifies with God perfectly, which means that he's able to breach the gap from man to God and from God to man. See, do you see how foundational this is? Do you see how absolutely necessary this is? That Jesus is both man and God. See, Jesus' origin makes him supremely qualified, even above his name, even above his identity, even above his eternality. His origin is the most foundational part that makes Jesus so supremely qualified. It's the key. But of course, this sounds like a very unusual thing to happen. Certainly, it's easy for us to forget how unusual it sounds. We're so familiar with the Christmas story. But it is certainly an unusual thing to hear. And so to help assure Mary, to help give her comfort, the angel then tells her about Elizabeth and says, here's this other unlikely pregnancy that's happened. And so when she looks on that, it gives encouragement. But then we hear in verse 37 that kind of, uh, that incredible comfort of what it gives us. Have a look at verse 37. For nothing is impossible with God Nothing is impossible with God, even a virgin conceiving. Now, having heard this, we then see Mary's response, and it truly is a, a great model, a great encouragement. It's breathtaking faith, the way she responds. Have a look at verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left. And it is inspiring to hear that, and may that be what we echo. We are the Lord's servant. But really, what I want you to bring you back to is the qualification of Jesus. See, Jesus is perfectly qualified to save us. He's perfectly qualified to breach the gap between God and humankind. He's perfectly qualified to fulfill what the Apostle Paul says he came to do. Now, keep your finger in Luke, but flip over with me to 1 Timothy, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We looked at this earlier this year. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15 says this, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. See, this is what Jesus came to do, to save sinners like us. In a sense, the whole reason for Christmas is Easter. The whole point of Christmas is Easter. The point of Jesus coming here is to die on the cross for our sins. And what we see here is that Jesus is perfectly qualified to die for our sins. Adam wasn't. Abraham wasn't. Moses wasn't. David wasn't. We certainly aren't. But Jesus is. Jesus is perfectly and utterly qualified because his heavenly father is God and his earthly mother is a human. The God-man, perfectly qualified to be our saviour. And so that's his identity. That's his qualifications. His name, his identity, his eternality and his origin. But as we close, I just want us to think, well, well, what does this mean then for us? What does this mean for us? Well, it means if we put our trust in Jesus, our perfectly qualified saviour, then we have incredible assurance that Jesus is up to the task and Jesus will do what he says he will do because he's qualified. Now, if I go to the dentist and I see hanging on the wall there a certificate from Box Hill Institute down the road, then it wouldn't fill me with much confidence. Not because Box Hill Institute isn't a, a fine institute, it is, but they're not known for their world-class dentistry education. But if I go in and hanging on the wall, I see a certificate from the University of Melbourne, then it fills me with much more confidence because that's what they've got, one of the things they've got a reputation in. See, the quality of the qualification can fill us with a lot or a little confidence. And what we see here is that the quality of Jesus' qualification is far above any other qualification. He's supremely and utterly qualified. And so we can rest assured in that with extreme, incredible confidence. And praise God for that. But what that means is we don't need to doubt. Because I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but doubt of our Saviour is one of the devil's tricks. Now this week I've been reading this book again. I've read it before, but it's, uh, it was worth reading again. The Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you're familiar with this book, but it's by uh, C.S. Lewis. It's a great book. It's a satirical piece. It's, uh, it's meant to be a, a bit of a kind of comedy. And in it, what you get is a senior devil writing a letter to a junior devil. And he's giving this junior devil tips on how to, to take people to hell, on how to trip people up, how to get them to abandon God. And it's, it's meant to be a satirical piece, but what you get underneath the humour and the engagement are some incredibly profound truths about the way the devil works. He schemes to try and destroy us as God's people. That's a great book. I do highly recommend it. But as I was reading through, it just got me reflecting again. It got me thinking again and reminded me that the devil is out there like a lion prowling around, wanting to destroy us. We are in a spiritual war. And one of the key tactics that the devil uses is to make our conscience accuse us, is to make us doubt God's sufficiency, to make us doubt that Jesus could ever forgive someone as bad as us. Have you ever experienced that? That gnawing voice in your ear that says, you're too short-tempered 
God could never forgive someone as hot-tempered as you. You're too jealous. God could never forgive someone as jealous as you. You're too lustful. You're too worrisome. You're too doubting. You're too broken. You're too sinful. God could never forgive someone like you. Your sin is too big. Maybe he could forgive other people, but not you. Your sin is too big. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever found yourself thinking, God could never forgive me? I certainly have. See, that's what the devil does. He makes us doubt Jesus' qualification, Jesus' ability to save us, to pay for our sins. But the, the wonderful thing we see about Luke 1 is that it shows us that Jesus is qualified. Jesus is fully and utterly qualified to deal with our sin. Far more qualified than we could have ever hoped for. And so he can deal with it. His death on the cross is sufficient for every sin we've ever done and for every sin we'll ever do. It's all been paid for with the precious blood of Jesus. And so then, the next time you hear that accusing voice, the next time the devil whispers in your ear, who are you going to listen to? The devil? Who doesn't care about you? Who doesn't want what's good for you? Who only wants to destroy you? Are you going to listen to him when he tells you that Jesus is not qualified to save a wretched sinner like you? Or are you going to listen to Jesus, the Son of God, the one who always does what he says he'll do, the one who's shown himself over and over to be trustworthy, the one who loves you and cares about you, the one who's fully and utterly qualified to save you? Who are you going to listen to? I'm going to pray. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice at the fact that Jesus is fully qualified to save us. And we ask that you would help us when we have those doubts, when our conscience accuses us, when we hear the devil whispering in our ear that our sin is too great and Jesus is not able to save us. We ask that you'd help us to remember Luke 1. That you'd help us to remember that Jesus is qualified and his death has paid for our sin. Uh, we rejoice at that wonderful good news of the gospel and uh, truly that is good news of great joy. And so Father, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you in particular for his origin. That he has a heavenly father and an earthly mother. We thank you for our, our God-man saviour who is perfectly qualified. It's in his name we pray. Amen.